morning, faith family. Glad we get to open this book together this morning. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6 this morning. And if you've been following along, you probably assume that we're going to be in verse 1. But when we originally planned this series, we uh, didn't expect to spend two weeks on marriage. And so I'm glad we did. My marriage needed that. Um, And so we're going to jump over to verse 5 and then next week return to verses 1 through 4. So parents and children in the room and at home, Next week will be particularly applicable and helpful to you guys. But this morning, we get to dive into the subject of work. And before we dive into the text, let me just pray that God would open our hearts to it and submit our will to his will. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Please incline our ears and our hearts to obey it now for Jesus' sake in the world. Amen. Amen. So what is God's will for your work? When you think about your work week, how does Jesus intersect and intervene and transform that environment? This is significant for us to consider as a culture because a recent poll revealed that 87% of all Americans are self-identifying as disengaged at work. I wonder where you would put yourself on that spectrum. Are you engaged at work? or disengaged at work. I wonder what you'd even say to the solution to that problem in our society of being disengaged. I think the world would offer many solutions, one of which would probably be to make work more engaging. But I think from Ephesians chapter 6 this morning, we're going to see a somewhat surprising solution to the fact of being disengaged at work. You got to wait for the answer. So you know that kind of dynamic that's unleashed in your life when you uh, hear a song and it gets into your head and it changes how you kind of work with your hands. And so what's going on in your heart, that rhythm changes your outlook, changes your perspective. Even modern technology has kind of gotten in in tune with this. They know the power of a song. I mean, our first dryer, I think if I remember the sound correctly, when that cycle would be done, it was a big blaring, right? just slavishly beckoning you to come fold these clothes. But now our dryer, modern dryer, bought it two years ago, it has a pretty little ditty that it plays you, right? And kind of woos you into that work, right? Or maybe a previous generation, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, you guys remember this, whistle while you work, right? Imagine that the broom is someone you love. When your hearts are high, the time will fly. Whistle while you work. That's a song. Or maybe the modern version of that is the Lego movie, right? It's, it's everything is awesome. I just undid all the worship we did this morning uh, because that tune is now in your heads. But I think this picture of my son Simeon uh, is an accurate reflection of how a change can, uh, a song can change the mundane just by how it, it puts us in a different frame of mind. This is not normally how our chores are approached at the Bugner family, but my wife caught him on the front porch sweeping like this. So check it out. That's a little picture, right, of how a song, that's his most despised chore, by the way, and a song, those earphones, right, tuned him in to help him have joy in the chore. So the, and the world wants us to approach work with a certain tune, a certain rhythm, 
And it's attuned to its system of values and its system of ethics. That's this worldly in nature. But what we're going to see in Ephesians chapter 6 is a different rhythm. And the whole book of Ephesians is, is letting us in on this new beat that God has allowed his people by his grace to walk according to. It's a new beat formed by Christ, established in Christ, and the spirit that he gifts his people allows us to walk according to this new rhythm, be attuned to what he's up to in the world. So foolishness would be to, to, to stop walking according to that tune we have through the spirit, through what God has done in Christ, and, and wisdom would be to, to keep in tune with that, to walk in step with the rhythm he has established in our lives. And I think in Ephesians chapter 6, when we approach our work week, we're going to see that a heavenly preoccupation changes the way we approach our earthly occupation. And when I talk about heaven in this message, I just want to anchor you on one reality in heaven. J.I. Packer went to be with the Lord this week. Uh, what a dear saint, what a dear brother. And he said, what makes heaven, heaven is Jesus. And so when I talk about heaven, I want you to think of the one precious treasure we get to be with Jesus in heaven. So how does Jesus transform our work by imparting a heavenly perspective? Look at this heavenly preoccupation as we read Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 9. Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as you would Christ. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ. Do God's will from your heart. Serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people, knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. And masters, treat your slaves the same way without threatening them because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. May God do this in our hearts today. But one tension we're immediately faced with as we read a, a text like this in our modern society is the tension of the, the master-slave uh, template that Paul applies to our work. And so even these categories make us squirm because we're even in this day and age right now as an American society dealing with the lingering effects of the horrific slave trade that was at work in our country's history. So we imagine this, this slavery in our minds in American history that's, that's unique and distinct in some ways from what Paul had in his mind when he talked about slavery there in Ephesus and in the ancient world. But this presents a real obstacle to us applying this passage today. So I want to address it head on. We're going to make seven quick, unique statements about how we should approach this topic biblically and think about it contextually. And then we're going to dive into the details of the text. I would encourage you not to write these down. They're downloadable on the PDF on the website if you just go to the link there. But just listen in. I'm going to make seven brief statements to help us put some categories in place to help us not have an obstacle to applying this to our work. So number one, Nowhere in the Bible is slavery justified as God's original design for work. All slavery is a result of sin's distortion of work relationships. Now look at the difference, even in this passage, of how Paul justifies the template God laid out in Eden for marriage 
by appealing to Genesis chapter 2. And then in 6, 1 through 4, God, he, God gives us the template for his family. And Paul appeals back to Exodus chapter 20 to help us understand this is how it, it's supposed to work. This is how these relationships are supposed to play out. But notice, that's noticeably absent in 6, 5 through 9. There's no appeal to scripture for this system outside of, of what he's saying right here. And I think that's the result of this system itself is not work in its purest form. This is a distortion of work. This, this mindset of masters and slaves is a distortion of God's original design. So he doesn't appeal to work in theory from Genesis chapter 2, which he could have done. He, he doesn't apply any scriptural template to the nature of this relationship. Slavery is the result of a sin-stained world, no matter how it plays out, with broken systems. And another aspect of this is in Ephesus in that day, up to one-third of the population were slaves. And some of them, yes, were oppressed. But some of them had rights and, and, and privileges that other, other people in the society didn't have. They even owned other slaves. So this is not the same dynamic as our American mindset about what slavery was here. It's not a one-to-one -one comparison. Secondly, the gospel exposes the sin of racism as evil. The gospel exposes the sin of racism as evil. No qualifiers, no need for explanation, period. Number three, the Bible condemns the oppressive use of authority. I love how in verse 9 of this passage, he doesn't just merely address slaves in 5 through 8. In 9, he addresses masters. If Paul merely addressed and only addressed the slaves, we might say he would be guilty of, of silently supporting the system. But no, God isn't condoning an oppressive system or an oppressive use of authority. He wants every master to understand they have a master and they will give an account to that master in heaven. And his name is Jesus. What Paul is helping slaves and masters do is navigate a broken system in a fallen world, this system of slavery. Number four. Some slavery still exists in our world today and needs to be exposed and eradicated. Just as we face the evil of chattel slavery in our history as a nation and we're still facing up to it, let us as a church be aware it still exists all over the world and in different ways in different societies. I mean, the stats on the sex trafficking industry are simply mind-blowing when you think of how much money it generates and how prevalent it is across the world. And corporately, we're trying to do our part right now. This current Roots and Reach project is partnering with Branket Fort Hope to provide shelter for these kids that are being rescued from this industry. And so we're, we're hoping to help them get kind of their feet on the ground and, and establish their building and their context for that place of refuge for victims of this industry. So corporately, we're trying to dive in, to expose it, to eradicate it, to, to shelter people from it. But at a personal level, I think we can play a part as well as a congregation. It's been noted that one-third of the victims for that evil enterprise of sex trafficking are used for the production of pornography. And one way to fight this whole industry and eradicate this whole industry by God's grace is to stop clicking on those images. If the demand isn't there, then the supply might run dry. So let's, let's apply ourselves to personal purity. Number five, getting back to the issue of this, this slavery template that Paul uses to address work. We lament. 
we lament the horrors of our own history. Both as a nation and even as some of the verses like this were used in the history of the Christian church to to justify this cruel, oppressive system in our own nation's history. We can own up to that narrative because of the cross. We recognize that our hostility was so innate and so deep inbred in us that our hostility led Jesus to the cross. And when he went to the cross, he ended our hostility and brought peace. And so seventh statement is let's point people to the cross as the only place where people can find peace. Let's proclaim the cross and pursue change. And while we pursue change, let me just say this last statement. While we can certainly work for change in our laws and systems, we need not put our hope in politics or the government to ultimately bring peace. It's only found at the cross. So there's a little bit of context. You can see those statements online if you check out that document. But the question still remains. Why does Paul appeal to this fallen system as the template for us to apply to work today? Why not just choose some other inter-work relationship to, to apply to the broader picture of what's going on then? This is consistent in Colossians, Philemon, 1 Timothy, 1 Corinthians, 1 Peter. He appeals and directly addresses slaves. And I think there are two reasons. One is, I think this is broadly applicable to all forms of work in all societies. So you might not be working right now in the sense of you have a job, but you're a student and you have one that is over authority of you, a teacher or a principal. Or you, you might think of yourself as, as just an employee and not an employer in, in relationship to that employer. You might be a business owner. But that the slave master is both ends of the spectrum and it's broadly applicable to everyone that is at work in this world. The second reason, I think, is that it's deeply meaningful for the nature of the Christian life. In verse 5, he addresses slaves directly, but in verse 6, he puts that in a different context. He says that they are actually not slaves of their earthly masters, but slaves of Christ. Paul wants them to understand their true identity is that Jesus owns everything and they owe everything to him. And he's done this already in relationship to himself in the book of Ephesians. He said in chapter 3 that he was a prisoner. But not a prisoner of Rome, which he was at the time. He's actually a prisoner of Christ Jesus. So he used an unjust system to open up a window so that we would understand the nature of the Christian life. We are slaves of Christ. And if we too quickly jump to the employee-employer relationship, I think we miss the pop of this image for the Christian life. We are slaves of Christ. Slaves in that context needed to understand their identity in relationship to Christ, just as masters needed to understand themselves as under the authority of Christ. Jesus is not your employer. Jesus is not your employer. That's on your outline. He's your everything if you're a Christian. Or he's nothing at all. If he just gets Sunday and Wednesday in our culture, he's not your Lord. You don't owe him everything. He's not owning everything in your life. If he just gets nine to five, you're not a slave of Christ. You're still a slave of sin. And those are the only two options. And isn't it a paradox, right, to talk about slavery to Christ? Michael Card said that Jesus came in the form of a slave, not to offer us freedom from slavery, but a new kind of slavery that is freedom indeed. Slavery to Jesus is actually true freedom because that's what kind of king Jesus really 
is. So now that we've kind of looked at why Paul uses this as a template, it's broadly applicable, it's deeply meaningful to the nature of the Christian life, I want you to see how Jesus transforms our work in four ways, okay? This is on your outline. The first one, Jesus imparts a heavenly rhythm to our work. Jesus imparts a heavenly rhythm to our work. And I would just say, if you're in a different context where you don't have a job, there's some relationship in the world that this might apply to you, teacher, student, something else. So apply it to that context. But Jesus takes our earthly scenario and imparts a heavenly tune, a heavenly rhythm. And this is in the middle of a section where Paul is asking this question and answering this question, what is God's will for you? God's will for you is to be wise and not be foolish. And he talked about being filled with the Spirit, and that Spirit creating a melody in our hearts and actually creating a submissive posture in our community as the church. Okay, so when we walk in wisdom, we are walking according to the Spirit's tune, this melody he's placed on our hearts that enables us to be mutually submissive to one another in the body. Now, this is so distinct in a world that uses people for personal gratification through sexual immorality or lust or whatever expression that was, or or usurps people for personal gain, malice, envy, jealousy, pride, right? This is so different. The Spirit creates a new ethic among us as the people of God. We are a community that, that yields to one another, that respects one another. And I, I liken this to kind of learning to drive in Turkey. Uh, at first, when you come from a rigid, law-based system of traffic flow, like from America, Turkey feels like Mario Kart, okay? It feels a little off. you got to recalibrate. And, and the, the two things that I noticed were always at work when I would notice people is that they are always alert to other cars and they're always just kind of trying to maintain the flow, whatever it is. You might think that's a red light, but it might not be a red light, right? That's what they're trying to do. They're taking their cue from one another. And I think that's what the Spirit enables us to do as a community is be mutually submissive to one another in the body of Christ out of the fear of Christ, 521 says. So aggression, this Turk told me, will lead to bad results. It might lead to a a wrecked car, you might hurt another passenger, you might get into a yelling match. But he had this philosophy of just yielding, of giving the right away to others. And that's the culture the Spirit is creating, we learned about in chapter 5. Now, that plays out in three unique relationships where there's particular submission that's called for. One is marriage and family. Wives submit to husbands. Children obey their parents. Children's <laughs> children obey their parents. And slaves obey their masters. Employees obey their employers here in 6, 5 through 9. So this is a particular expression of submission within the context of what God is doing through Christ. And I think this rhythm that Christ imparts to us, it has two aspects to it. There's a heavenly purpose that we're a part of and a heavenly perspective to our day-to-day jobs. I want to tease out this heavenly purpose. This is not from 6, 5 through 9, but when you look at the broad scale of the book of Ephesians, this is what God's up to in the world. And grace is going global. 
grace is this incalculable wealthy Christ who's just dispensing grace after grace after grace is headed to the nations. And the news of him is spreading all over the world. And not only are people getting an inheritance in heaven in Christ where they will be lavished on forever and ever with this this, uh, incalculable wealth of grace, They're being incorporated into the church on earth. That's what we learned from chapter 3. This heavenly rhythm beats with a global goal. And we have many marketplace professionals that have kind of tuned in, put their headphones on, and heard this beat. And it has led them to transplant their skill set over to the place where Christ has not yet been known. Christ has not yet been been treasured for the wealth of grace that he is. We have accountants and nurses and teachers and business owners scattered all over the globe that are engaging least reach peoples with the gospel. And that accountant who lives in the Middle East told me the difference between his job in Birmingham and his job there is that none of his coworkers had ever heard the gospel and none of them had ever met a Christian until he arrived. I even talked to two leaders within our congregation and tried to just get their wisdom on how this heavenly purpose plays out in their workplace. And they both said they regularly pray for their co-workers and they regularly seek opportunities to share the gospel with their co-workers. That's right here in Birmingham. So it's playing out. This heavenly purpose puts us to a different tune and we're thinking about our co-workers, about their eternal destiny. And we want to proclaim the cross to them. So how do we tune into that practically? I think you might need to pause every now and then in your day and just reflect on where you've been, pray about where you are, and pray about where you're headed. Just get in tune with some heavenly rhythm while you're in the daily grind. Maybe you need to to listen to the Bible on your way to work, like one brother here was trying to finish the Bible in three months, and he was in Leviticus trying to, to just push through it while he drove around Alabama for his job. That might be a way to tune in to this heavenly rhythm while you're at work. So now let's dig into this perspective that heaven creates here at work from this passage. Look at the text with me and look how many times this little adverb as appears. Verse 5, this will be up on the screen. Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as you would Christ. Don't only work while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ. Do God's will from your heart. Serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people. That two-letter word changes everything. Jesus is at your work every week. He's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. He's the most consistent person there. Because you are supposed to be working and obeying your earthly master with a reverence for him. So that second point is this, there on your outline. A heavenly reverence for Jesus translates into respectful, diligent submission to authorities at work. A heavenly reverence for Jesus translates into respectful, diligent submission to whoever your authority is at work. You are working to your earthly authority as if he is Jesus, she is Jesus himself. Jesus is the focus. And even that has the idea of worship. You obey them as you would worship Christ. You ascribe worth to Christ in your obedience to your earthly 
boss. And even verse 5 articulates kind of the, the ethic there. Fear and trembling in verse 5 tells us this, this heightened sensitivity. It's not the oppressive fear of, of failing or not measuring up, but it's this heightened intensity to which you apply yourself to your earthly boss's wants and desires so that because it's an expression of Christ's will for you in that workplace. Even in that, that phrase, in the sincerity of your hearts, actually carries within it this idea of single-minded devotion. I remember when my dad would teach me to, to wash the car growing up. And he would always kind of go back around the car and see if I took any holidays. That's not the ethic of a Christian at work. We don't take holidays. We intensely apply ourselves to our boss's desires because they're an expression of Christ's will for us in the workplace, unless he calls you to do or she calls you to do something that would violate Christ's will explicitly. God's will for you at work, listen to this, is to obey your earthly boss with the same intensity and diligence you would Christ if he were your immediate supervisor. Reverence toward Christ reflects in a respectful obedience at work on earth. How's your posture toward your supervisor? Think about it. This puts us on a different plane. Our eyes aren't on what other employees are doing. Our eyes are on Christ. Our eyes aren't on what other students are doing. Our eyes are on Christ. Helps us obey the teacher. Helps us obey our boss. Third way Jesus transforms our work is found in verses 7 and 8. Number three, the heavenly reward from Jesus translates into being pleasant and productive employees at work. The heavenly reward from Jesus translates into being pleasant and productive employees at work. The world has a rhythm for your work, and it's overloaded with burdens. The world's motivation for work looks for a reward from the world for its work. They're fixed on the here and now, the temporal cost-benefit analysis of their work. And Paul speckles, speckles this worldly motivation throughout and warns us against them to not be foolish. Verse 6, don't work only while being watched as people pleasers. And that word has this idea of working merely as slaves of men. Or verse 7, serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people, not to man. If, if this man were beat as it work in your heart, this rhythm, if your eyes are only on your employees, your your coworkers or your employer, this will reveal itself in basically two ways. Underwork, you'll only work while you're being watched, or overwork, you've attached your significance and your meaning to such a degree to your, to your boss's opinion of you or your fellow employee's opinion of you that you work yourself to the bone because your identity is overlapped with your work. That's how people-pleasing plays out. We are slaves to the opinions of others when we attach our identities to their opinions of us. And this just breeds a, a culture of competition and insecurity. And a sign that we might be venturing in that direction is, are we really touchy or really nervous or even really grumpy at work? Because we're always looking over our shoulder, always wondering what other people are doing. And, and it basically neutralizes our ability to be pleasant at work. Did you notice that? People pleasers aren't pleasant at work. Why? Because people pleasers are consumed with themselves. What they have or what they don't have or the acknowledgement from the boss of what they have or don't have or their paycheck, is, it's always contingent on some earthly reality. 
But the gospel grants us a different kind of freedom. The gospel grants us the freedom is that we think accurately about ourselves and we actually think of ourselves less. We're able to celebrate others genuinely and receive criticism humbly. We're actually pleasant to work with. So this heavenly orientation of reward from heaven coming in the last day actually enables us to be pleasant to work with. We please Jesus, verse 8, knowing that whatever good each one does, see the individualized application here, whatever good you do at the workplace, slave or free, no matter what context you're in, he will receive this back from the Lord. And I think we kind of struggle with this if or since mentality. If only I had this, I could be pleasant at work. Or since I don't have this, I can't be pleasant at work. I'm just going to be grumpy. But Paul puts that qualifier here. Whether you're slave or free, you can serve with a good attitude because your your orientation is heavenward. You're waiting for the big paycheck when God's grace actually rewards you for your faithfulness here on earth. So ask yourself, are you a treat to work with or a thorn? And if if you think yourself a thorn, I would just encourage you to ask yourself, where is your treasure? Is your treasure in your boss's opinion of you or, or the recognition of your paycheck that, that is attached to your worth? Is your treasure on earth or in heaven? If our treasure's in heaven, we'll be pleasant on earth. Here's a little rhyme for you. Those who grumble in the daily grind reveal that they dance to an earthly rhyme. Okay? Those who grumble in the daily grind reveal they dance to an earthly rhyme. I heard this illustration one time of, of a brother uh, that, that was in charge of cleaning a, a porta john that was at a construction site that had not been cleaned for quite some time. And even the construction workers were gagging when they came to work. And he pops out of his car one day. He's got glaring music on. He pops out big dude tattoos, jumps into that cesspool and cleans it up. And the construction workers were just shocked. They were all laughing because it was it was. It was called an odiferous disaster is what the writer said. <laughs> and, uh, and when he got out, he yelled to everybody, I'm going to make this place clean from here on out. I'll be back next week. And so as he's driving off, one of the construction workers says, how in the world did you do that? Why did you do that? And he said, I work for the Lord Jesus. <laughs> My orientation's to him. I'll be back next week. See y'all. <laughs> and that, that just gave him a joy even in the cesspool. So you might have a bad job or a tough boss, but you don't have one in heaven, church. (laughs) You don't have one in heaven. He will reward. And and culturally, we need to kind of tease this out a little bit. Our our youth last year, a survey was taken that our youth's priority, their biggest worry at this point is to find a job or career that they will enjoy. 95% of our youth struggle with this anxiety, finding a job or career that they will enjoy. That's bigger than getting married at 47% in that same poll. So in the early 20th century, I think we were content for a season to let work be a money-making machine. But now we're in the 21st century, and what have we made work? We've made work a meaning-making machine. And we're just starting to see the breakdown of it. Instead of fulfilling a job, we have asked the job to fulfill us. Tell me, who's working who? Who's on the factory line in that equation? We are. We're looking to work to satisfy us. 
Friends, don't expect from the world what only heaven can give. Let us work to a different rhythm. A people who funnel their dreams into heaven are a joy to work with on earth. And the irony of this is if you want to engage more deeply at work, you've got to disengage your heart more deeply from work and engage it with Christ and with what he's doing in heaven so they can flesh out here on earth. And my fourth point, last point, is Jesus transforms our work in this fourth way and he speaks to masters. The heavenly regard of Jesus on your outline translates into the respectful use of authority at work. The heavenly regard of Jesus translates into the respectful use of authority at work. Paul turns to masters in verse 9, and he says, Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Meaning, in the same way that they had reference to Christ, you should have reference to Christ. In the same way that they should worship Christ, you should worship Christ in how you steward your authority. In a way that accords to Christ. And that will flesh out in terms of tone. Without threatening them, verse 9, because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven and there's no favoritism with him. You know, threatening is the default mode of the human heart. When we're in authority and someone under our authority doesn't do what we want, we start ramping up those threats. Just ask any parent in this room of any two-year-old. We can ramp up some threats because we demand respect now. There's this impatience and anger mixed in that. But that's not the default mode of the Christian for how he influences others under his authority. Because a heavenly orientation allows us to be patient with people on earth, recognizing we're all in process. But also, it enables us to have the ethic of heaven transform the ethic on earth. If Christ treats people with equal worth and dignity, we should treat people with equal worth and dignity on earth as we steward our authority, if you have a measure of authority in your workplace. You see the portal that's opened up here? A portal of heaven is accessible in your workplace each week. People should know if you are one who has authority what it's like to be under the boss, Jesus, by how you demonstrate your authority in like manner to his. One category that's helped me is Tim Kelly's book, Do More Better. He had this category for everyone who's a leader. Serve, so that's, that's our main ethic as a leader. How do we serve those under our authority? That's what Jesus did. But how do we surprise them, right? Occasionally, we need to throw in surprises so that they know we are for them tangibly. We want to be a blessing as a leader. So I ask you, in how you lead or how you are led, are you a taste of heaven on earth? Is the heavenly preoccupation translating into an earthly transformation at your workplace? Do you help people see in how you're led or how you lead that you, what a joy it is to be under the authority of King Jesus. I mean, I think Snow White might have gotten something right. When hearts are high, she said, when hearts are high, she talked about her broom, but I'm talking about real high, <laughs> fixed on Jesus where he is in heaven. When hearts are that high, the time will fly, and we can whistle while we work. So let's get to work, Brooke Hills.